and welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I am your host, Kayla Fratt, and I'm one of the co-founders of Canine Conservationists, where we train dogs to detect data for researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, I get to talk to Sarah Owings again about stimulus control. This is a Absolutely fascinating conversation. Sarah and I went a little long. We could have talked for much longer, but get interrupted by both Tucker and Niffler at the end, um, protesting the length of our discussion. Um, we talk about fluency and impulse control and how those are related to stimulus control. We talk about umwelt. We're talking about ritual and physical cues and how impulse control or uh, stimulus control relates to welfare. So fun. Sarah, if you don't know who she is, she is a Karen Pryor Academy certified training partner and a longtime educator. She specializes in the practical application of learning principles, transforming the lives of challenging dogs, as well as the lives of humans that care for and love them. As an international speaker and regular contributor to both online and in-person conferences, she is known for innovative approaches to tough behavior problems and compassionate and insightful teaching. Sarah has written for Clean Run Magazine on topics such as stimulus control, release cues, and toy-specific cues. She currently gets her fills of what she calls brave learning as a member of the Clicker Expo faculty, an instructor for CyberSent Online, and tutor and curriculum designer for Tromplo. In the past, she has also advised the Glendale Community, uh, the Glendale Humane Society in Los Angeles, and also training team at the Marin Humane Society in Northern California. She is an avid nosework competitor, currently competing at the Elite Three and Summit level with her always thrilling canine teammate, Tucker. She shares her life with a deeply supportive husband, Fred, two dogs, Zoe and Tucker, a huge garden, and a tortoise named Bug. And again, Oh my gosh, y'all are going to love this, but first we're going to get into our science highlights. So this week we are reading, reactivity, reactivity to stimuli is a temperamental factor contributing to canine aggression. This was published by Sakaya Arata, Yukari Takeuchi, Mei Inoue, and Yuji Mori. This was published in June 2014 in PLOS One. And again, basically, they're looking at what factors contribute to canine aggression among the top 17 dog breeds, and are those factors temperamental? So they write, canine aggression is one of the most frequent problems in veterinary behavior medicine, which in severe cases may result in relinquishment or euthanasia, as it's important to as it is important to reveal underlying factors of aggression, both for treatment and prevention, they, pre they developed a questionnaire on aggression and temperamental traits that were found and found that reactivity to stimuli was associated towards owners, children, and strangers, and other dogs of the Shiba Inu breed. In order to examine whether these associations were consistent in other breeds, they asked owners of insured dogs of Amcon Insurance to complete their questionnaire. The top 17 contacted breeds were included in the study, and the questionnaire consisted of dogs' general information, four items related to information to owners, strangers, children, and others, and other dogs, as well as 20 other behavioral items. They had 5,610 valid responses from owners of dogs aged between 1 and 10 years old. Their factor analysis on 18 behavioral items extracted five largely consistent factors in the 14 breeds, which were sociability to humans, fear of sounds, chase proneness, reactivity to stimuli, and avoidance of aversive events. By stepwise multiple regression analyses using Schwartz's Behesian information criteria method with aggression points as objective variables and general information and temperamental factors as explanatory variables, 
They found that physical reactivity to sudden movement was, or sound at home was shown to be significantly associated with owner-directed aggression in 13 breeds, child-directed aggression in 8 breeds, stranger-directed aggression in 9 breeds, and dog-directed aggression in 5 breeds. These results suggest that reactivity to stimuli is simultaneously involved in several types of aggression. Therefore, it is worth taking reactivity to stimuli into account in the treatment and prevention of canine aggression. Um, so. I think this makes a lot of sense because if you can kind of imagine if someone, you know, on a, on a quiz or uh, a questionnaire is saying that, yes, my dog reacts strongly to noises or movement or other stimuli in the environment, um, those stronger responses probably correlate to some amount of emotional response. Um, they were getting a behavior in an area where other dogs may not present much behavior. And it's not surprising that therefore these dogs that are potentially quote unquote jumpy are also more likely to then have an emotional response that um, could be aggressive. So yeah, the bottom line here is if you're considering bringing a dog into your home and you have the opportunity to examine how reactive to various stimuli they are, that may give you a clue into um, any tendencies towards aggression. Um, I don't have it written down here kind of, you know, again, it correlated. So I, I, this doesn't mean that all dogs that are, again, quote unquote, overly reactive to stimuli are going to be aggressive. And it doesn't necessarily mean that all aggressive dogs are overly reactive to stimuli. Um, so without further ado, let's get into our conversation about stimulus control and how the environment influences behavior with Sarah Owings. So Sarah, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. My pleasure. It was so much fun last time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, today we are talking stimulus control. So I guess, you know, first things first, we've got to start with our definitions. What, uh, what does stimulus control mean to you? What? <laughs> well, the, the, the simplest way to, to think about it is just understanding that the environment has an influence on our behavior or on mm -hmm. any, any behavior. So it's the relationship between environment and behavior. Okay. And a stimulus is just anything that can be perceived with the senses. And when mm -hmm. it has an impact on behavior, when there's a change in behavior in the presence of that stimulus, we call that stimulus control. Okay. So that's how I think yeah. of it is um, uh -huh. the word control feels very tight and it, mm -hmm. it makes a lot of people antsy and confused and fussy about it. But, mm -hmm. <laughs> but if you think of it sort of just, a be if your behavior changes under in the influence, it's like an more of an influencer. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I thought of a really good example. Well, I hope it's a good one. Is like if you're <laughs> if you're really tired, right? We call that a motivating operation. So it makes mm -hmm. the the presence of the bed, which is a stimulus. You see the bed there. Yeah. And because of that motivating operation, it's going to be mm -hmm. reinforcing to go lay down on it. Sure. Okay. So so that's. The, so we say the, the, the bed is the stimulus controlling the behavior of laying mm, down. Okay. And the reinforcer is that it feels nice because you were tired. Yeah. And that's yeah, happening I, all the time, 24-7. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I think that's super important. Um, there's so much research and so much of our foundational work in behavior analysis and therefore mm -hmm. in especially U.S. dog training is super heavily influenced by ABA 
so much of it is in Skinner boxes, which is about as close to eliminating the environment from behavior as you can get. Um, right, but the, but the those the apparatus itself is an environment. But the idea of there course, is to yeah. try as much as possible to isolate variables, which is yeah. what science does. Right, you you can kind of say the only variable in this situation is that we change the dot from red to black. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of, rather than, oh, there was a smell from the squirrel that ran by and right. that maybe changed the behavior in a way that we weren't, we can't measure or something, but that's why they put mm -hmm. it in. But that whole chamber is uh, controlling the, the behaviors that yeah. happen in that context. Right. So okay. Mm -hmm. A lot of what I do, a lot of the training that I do, I am constantly thinking about uh, pulling relevant stimuli out of contexts. So mm -hmm. an, an odor cue would be a great example for mm -hmm. scent work dogs. How do you make that cue the most relevant in that environment? Right. Okay. So yeah, how do we make our target odor into the stimulus that controls the behavior? Is that a way phrase it Are we that would that would work and yeah um, uh -huh. and I really think of it as uh, either isolating a cue or or creating making that cue very very relevant um, uh -huh. rather than ideas like the dog has to control his impulses to yeah. to, to ignore X stimulus in order to do Y to respond to Y stimulus. Mm -hmm. I just think of it as, well, if, if your dog chases a squirrel instead of target odor, then that squirrel stimulus is way too relevant. And yeah. your, okay. your odors, your odor cue is not relevant enough yet. So you gotta yeah. go back and find a way to make it really, really relevant. Um, so that's how I think of it because yeah. then I can keep in my training, I'm constantly, anytime the training session go, kind of goes off the rails or something, I can always look at the context cues and go, uh -huh. what, what made that happen? Mm -hmm. um, I think when we talked last time, I gave the example of when I tucked a toy under my armpit. Yeah. And my, my dog took that as a stimulus to bite. Uh, and, and and he took my arm and everything and pulled me to the ground. And we might say, oh, that bad dog is out of control, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But what I, and it was not very fun, but what I realized was he didn't have clarity on the cue that I wanted him. You know, I wanted him to yeah. wait for a cue to bite. Yes. And yeah. in, in, in his learning, the, the, the presence of the toy, the, the visual right of the toy was the cue to just go for it and bite it. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I, that, I said, okay, I got to teach him this. I got to, I teach him to wait for cues. I got to teach him that the words out of my mouth are relevant. Yes. And then I have to teach him that uh, waiting for those words, that's, that's a way to get the toy. Um, mm -hmm. And there's a lot of ways to mess that up. For example, yes. waving your toys around and cueing a verbal at the same time the the toy is always gonna be more relevant than yeah. the verbal so yeah um so yeah so anyway that's mm -hmm. well yeah gosh i've got so many different threads i want to start pulling on already um <laughs> but the first one that i'll say is so i think i was actually working on this last night with niffler um just as mm -hmm. another example so um niffler um is he's 21 months old and he has always enjoyed tugging but has had a little bit of 
um, a sloppy target with his with his um, tugging, so he often gets me in the hand. And he also generally doesn't hold on to toys and kind of tug with as much intensity as I would like. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not super important for a lot of work, but you know, it's fun to train your dog. So last night I was going out and I realized very quickly that part of these two problems are actually related because for him, he was missing the tug toy as he was targeting, hitting my hand, I was yelping in a way that was aversive to him and making him kind of nervous of tugging for me again. Mm -hmm. So we started working on stimulus control of I'm going to present the toy when I have it set, I'm going to give a cue and that is when you are able to go and go for it. And I was working on it with both of my dogs and very quickly realized that for both of them, I am so consistent about in that moment that I present the toy, I say the cue at the same time. So the the word wasn't what mattered. Um, so we were playing with that last night. And it reminds me of, you know, in agility, this is a common problem where you're walking your lead out. And at the moment you look back to tell your dog to go, you say go. And therefore you get these dogs that the second you turn, they go instead of listening to our cue. Is that, are those good examples? <laughs> those are great examples. Um, yeah. And always for most animals, except obviously maybe a, a, a blind animal, um, mm-hmm. always a visual or scent or movement, those cues are going to be more relevant. They're always going to be the louder, more clear. I mean, our words are fairly meaningless um, to them. And so mm-hmm. they, you really have to teach it carefully. Yeah. Um, and, and more and more lately, I mean, certainly on toy cues, um, I'm pretty careful just because of safety reasons. Um, mm-hmm. But more and more, I have been just thinking, well, why not just go with what the, is easier for the animal? Yeah, like, sure. Like when, I first, when I first started out as a trainer, I thought every cue had to be verbal and it had to be mm-hmm. like, sit down, you know, plots, you know, all the, the <laughs> yeah. you know, very militaristic one syllable <laughs> Um, and I'm actually really enjoying lately is just exploring more things like um, m- movement cues. And I mean, that's how freestyle. Well, that's so free. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and yeah, yeah. W- that's a great point, actually. Like if I just put it in my head that presenting the tug toy at my side s- spread out, you know, so that he's got a mm-hmm. nice surface to aim for is the cue. It doesn't. Matter, I don't have to put it under a verbal cue or control that so intensely, but it, it's not all that much easier for me. <laughs> you know, we're no, such I mean, a verbal it, species. I think exactly. that is, um, the, I just wrote down in my notes, umwelt, um, which are, is, this is a concept I'm sure you're familiar with. Yes. Yes. I just, um, it, it just came up in a whole other conversation that yeah, I was having I'm with obs- a so I'm obsessed with um, Franz de Waal and a lot of these other kind of like ethologists and primatology researchers. And they mm-hmm. talk about, and in comparative cognition, they talk about this all the time where understanding the world and the perception of the animal that you're studying or trying to work with is so important. And I think it was probably one, one of Franz de Waal's books, or maybe it was a, um, oh gosh, what's her name? I, Irene Pepperberg, the woman who um, works with the African gray parrots at Harvard, um, you know, talking about how uniquely hyperverbal we are as a species and how big of a shift that is when we're working with, you know, dogs don't talk much. You know, they, they communicate in a lot of other ways, but they don't talk much. So Yes, yeah. yes. Oh. So, well, yeah. they talk 
Yeah. Well, yeah. Communicate a yeah. lot. But, they, they verbalize. But, they don't verbalize. verbalize. And um, yeah, it, and like I said, so um, I've just slowly softened and gotten yeah. more relaxed. And then all my, like our, my play with the dogs, uh, everything has become um, also the other big thing, the big shift for me is uh, instead of me always cueing them, I'm mm -hmm. starting to be better at listening to when they cue me. Oh, so I love that. Uh -huh. What game do they want to play? And what, mm -hmm. uh, what, how are they telling me they want a tug versus a toss versus a, mm -hmm. and I find the more I listen and the more we're paying attention to each other, nobody gets hurt. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. but I could do it all. I could do it completely quietly. I mean, I, well, yeah. I, I, talk, I, I babble a lot and my dogs are used to it, but, sure. yeah. um, but they, it's all in the body language of, you know, he'll drop a toy and put his foot over it and hunker down. And that's yeah. the teasy game. And then I'll, yeah. I'll, oh, I'll sneak up you. and pretend to get it. And then he's like, yeah. And then if he likes, if he likes that game, he'll repeat that cue again. Uh -huh. And then after a little while, he'll say, okay, now tug it. And he'll shove it at me and I'll, I'll tug yeah. it. And I actually love this new, I love going there. But in the very beginning, it was really, really important um, to have him just wait for the verbal sure. cue yeah. tug. And only when I say tug, can he bite it? Um, because mm -hmm. I, I, in the beginning I, I got hurt a lot. Um, yeah. yeah. And there was a lot of confusion. That, and so, so yeah. um, so it's sort of a nice starting point. It's like you learn the rules and you feel safe and then you slowly relax and you'd go into this other place where both sides of the equation yeah. are talking. And I think that's really kind of Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I mean, play is, a conversation and as long as you can do it safely. And I remember um, one of the things that stuck with me in some puppy class I shadowed back in a while ago now was um, if you can't control the game, don't play the game. And it wasn't meant in this way of, oh, you can't wrestle with big dogs or you have to be able to win or, you know, you can't let the dog win. It, was, it wasn't anything like that. It was, you know, hey, maybe if you're an if your kid is 70 pounds and you've got a, you know, 170 pound Mastiff, tug of war just might not be the best fit for them because th that just might not be safe. Um, so yeah, I, I think starting with this, this concept of stimulus control and figuring out how to play safely um, makes a lot of sense. And then you can start. Yeah. I love. Yeah. But the thing yeah. to know is the stimulus mm -hmm. control is always happening. It's yes, always yeah. going on. It It's not, I have heard that mistake a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. You know, people used to say impulse control and that yeah. meant a dog who was very obedient and never took the toy off cue. And, you know, uh, and, and then we started talking about stimulus control, but a lot of people kept thinking it meant exactly the same thing, which is a dog that waits yeah. and never, right. And so the reality is um, the stimulus, it's happening all the time. So even in a, a, even when two dogs are playing with one another, there's an exquisite back and forth mm -hmm. of so many cues um, that is, you know, just the, the, the way the ears go flat or the, the play yeah. bow or the, the speed or the, when one dog asks for a timeout and the other dog, you know, listens and, yeah. but it's all stimulus control because they're mm -hmm. constantly, it's again, think of it as a stream of stimuli in the environment and it's having mm -hmm. an influence on the behavior. Um, yeah. and that's happening all the time. 
Um, as my friend, uh, Dr. Rosales Ruiz likes to say, uh, all the way until you die, like <laughs> from the time you're born <laughs> until the time you die, it's just this stream of, uh, of stimuli that are, yeah. um, and I, I don't think of it as this rigid thing. I think of it as this sort of exquisite sorting of information and, um, well, survival and, uh-huh. um, and, a beautiful openness to the environment. Um, and also just the, the myriad of choices that you have, you know, that they're still all under the influence of different stimulus stimuli, like, like that example of the bed. If I was really not tired, I was feeling uh-huh. antsy. I could choose instead to get dressed and get in my car and go to a party uh-huh. instead of go to bed. It's not like the bed controls me all the, yeah. do you see what I mean? It, it's like, I think so. Yeah. I can, but in order to go to a party, I have to do behaviors. I have to put mm-hmm. my keys in the ignition. I have to get in the car. Mm-hmm. I have to follow the traffic signs. I have Probably to have to shower. You know, take a shower. <laughs> take yeah. a shower. Get dressed. You know, get out <laughs> yeah. of my pajamas. But yeah, yeah all of those behaviors. Um, uh-huh. Anyway, I don't know how much that relates to training, but the more you see it, um, the more you understand that every training session is also embedded in a context. Um, and so, like I said, when, when your training goes off, off the rails, uh, or something doesn't happen the way you expect very often, um, in scent work anyway, it's when the animal is queuing off of the wrong thing in the environment, yeah. usually you, uh, most likely you, um, mm-hmm. when we want them paying attention to odor and the dog yeah. starts queuing off where our feet are pointing, or right. right. Cause you've created a pattern of that is relevant that mm-hmm. you didn't know you didn't realize was relevant, but the dog goes, Oh, it's relevant or mm-hmm. clicker trained dogs. Um, I have found go through a phase sometimes in their training where it's a great strategy. Instead of seeking odor, they will pause on every object in the room until they are clicked. Yeah. Which is a very smart strategy, right? Yeah. But it's not what we want them to be right. yeah. doing. And if you and they might get a hundred percent correct, but until you realize, oh my gosh, the dog is not really paying attention to odor. Yeah, they, yeah. This they, is well and like, yeah, good good luck once you're starting to work blind hides. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. that's when everything falls apart. Or a friend of mine um accidentally taught her dog because she set all her hides herself. Mm-hmm. in the early phase of that dog's training. So she got her own scent mixed mm. up with that odor. Uh, and so yeah. when she went to a class, finally, like a year later, went to a class, her dog was like, I don't, I don't understand that cue. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, I only and, know peanut butter and jelly. I have no interest in jelly alone. Right. Um, and yeah. so one of the ways I think about stimulus control for scent detection is I like to constantly vary all the other cues that are not mm-hmm. relevant, but always keeping the odor cue the same. Yeah. So how many ways can I change the environment or the container or the, what, what, what smells are nearby, mm-hmm. uh, what I'm doing and just constantly uh, folding that in from as, as right from the very beginning. So that, mm-hmm. so eventually the the dog learns to tune out the irrelevant stimuli um 
and focus just on the one thing that has stayed constant throughout. Yeah. Um, and that's a great way to make your training very resilient early. Yeah. Well, and right. I, I can't remember who came, who kind of came up with this or I've heard it from first. It was probably either Sarah Strabing or Hannah Brannigan, kind of this concept of not harder, but different. Um, in, I, you know, kind of every training session where it's not necessarily that I'm constantly upping the ante and teaching my dog that like, oh God, every time we train, it's going to be, <laughs> you know, a huge mental workout. I mean, sometimes it will be, but you know, you, you can't really continue in that way forever. It's not fun, but can we make it different? Um, and uh, yeah, can we just put something else in the environment? Can we just search in a different way? Can we, yeah, add, right, add something right. or take something away or yeah, just set things up in an unusual way so that again, yeah, that's, the odor becomes the most salient cue. It takes a village to keep canine conservationists running. One of our valued team members is Sunny Murphy, who runs Black Flower Content Writing. Sunny started out as a volunteer creating infographics based on our podcast episodes, but quickly earned her place as a paid member of the team. If you need a creative, enthusiastic voice to help your company or nonprofit with blog writing, social media planning, and or email newsletter campaigns, check out Black Flower Writing Services. I cannot recommend Sunny highly enough. Thanks, and let's get back to the episode. Yeah. So one of the other things I jotted down when you first started talking was this concept of fluency and how, to me, stimulus control always kind of comes piggybacked with fluency. And I don't know whether stimulus control is like just a component of fluency or, um, yeah, how are, how are those related in your mind? Well, I, I, I think of fluency as having a number of um, parameters mm-hmm. And stimulus control fits in in terms of you have a very um, high degree of reliability that under those conditions, you will see your goal behavior. Okay. Like it's just, it's, it's not going to be a hundred percent because no living creature is a perfect robot. Even robots are probably not perfect. Well, as my computer Um, just demonstrated. (laughs) Exactly. But, um, but if you have a very high degree of reliability, Mm -hmm. Under those, and by conditions, I mean, there's a queue and then there's a context that queue is in. Yeah. And so under those conditions, if you are, if you would like bet a hundred dollars, you're going to get mm-hmm. that goal behavior that then I, I check that box mm-hmm. for fluency, stimulus control. Yeah. So then other aspects of fluency involve things like latency mm-hmm. in response to the queue. So how fast does the uh, organism respond to that queue? Mm-hmm. Like, do you have immediate, immediate, I got it, you know, I'm doing it. Um, For example, uh, when the light turns green and you step on the gas without even thinking, Mm -hmm. there's very low latency there. Uh, And then there's speed, right? Which is uh, how long it takes you to complete the behavior. Now, it depends on what the behavior is. Um, If it's like a trick, like a spin, Mm -hmm. right? That the animal might start the spin and then kind of be really slow about it. Yeah. Or, or, or unsure of how to get around yeah, in, they can in, kind into of the right position. Spin, or you can do the like full on right. performance border collie spin, 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 spin right. before you can blink. Right. And then of course it's related to, you know, I mean, if you have a, uh, you know, a great Pyrenees is going to spin right. differently than a border collie, 
but for but if you if it's not fluent to me if the spin happens in an irregular pattern yeah like there's got there's some amount, amount of spin, consistency that's inherent in fluency exactly yeah right um and so you you kind of when you start to just see it locking in and you give the cue and the behavior starts right away and it's performed in a very similar manner every time mm-hmm. And then if you can start changing conditions, like a new environment mm-hmm. or start doing those things like, um, I don't know, you know, put your hand over your head and say the cue or whatever it is you want to, if the behavior still happens, yeah, um, then you really, really can say it's fluent and on and, and has good stimulus control yeah. because for example, if it's a verbal cue like spin and I can put my arms over my head or I can cover my mouth mm-hmm. and say spin and the and the behavior happens just the way you know with speed uh-huh. and that means that the I could probably bet that the verbal it's the sound right of the cue that is actually affecting that behavior and not some little like head tilt that I'm doing or um right sure. that kind yeah. of thing. Well, so so when you put all those pieces together, then you would say the behavior is fluent. Um, yeah, I think so. And I think kind of bringing it back to kind of scent work or detection work, I think of, you know, with baby Niffler when he was 14 weeks old, I would practice, okay, this time I'm going to sit on the bed while he's searching. And this time I'm going to stand. And this time, maybe I'm not going to turn my back on him, but I'm going to turn my hips to face the wall while my torso is still facing him or vice versa. And just kind of constantly altering these things so that he could really learn to work independently when I asked him to um, and not, not be too f- too fussed about anything else that's happening in the environment. And that's kind of our central goal for most of our detection dogs is you ask them to search and they search relatively regardless of what's going on in the environment. Right. Right. Um, With very little. um, And now, you know, a search can take three minutes or a search can take hours. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's like something in the speed category of you say search and they start out searching um right away yeah. without any kind of like i need to look around and i need to sniff and i gotta go take a pee and scratch an itch and then i'll start searching yeah. that's to me not not a fluent that dog's not fluent yeah. yet um when i see those kind of things mm-hmm. um kind of creeping into the whole search pattern um yeah so there's a search cue there's a search cue and then there's a, a cue that um so that's what I love about odor is there's a search cue, which means just go out and start looking regardless of whether or not you have odor in your nose or anything. And then there's the moment the dog first encounters odor, mm-hmm. which is also a cue, yeah. right? So they, you should see a change in, that's what I mean. Uh, you should see a change in behavior mm-hmm. there uh, as soon as they, the dog encounters yeah. that, yep. that next level of cue but we don't really want our final response or whatever it is we've trained the mm-hmm. dog to do to happen until the dog has Followed located the exact gradient. source. Yeah. Right. So that's, what's so fascinating to me about odor cues yeah. is because they are, they affect the behavior for a long period of time. Right. And it's such a complex series so many, of, yeah. yeah, it's so much more than, us than sitting when we say sit 
Right. Um, right. Yeah. Right. If I um, ask you to search, but you can still, you start, I can still, but go ahead. Right. Go ahead. Exactly. But I can still hold that measurement of fluency yeah. up, even if it takes an hour and the dog has been doing its trained search patterns out in the mm-hmm. wilderness that you do. Um, or my, the, my, uh, my scent detection, which usually is like six minutes yeah. <laughs> of just, um, um, so anyway, but I, I love that idea of applying the same idea of fluency to, um, to a full search and thinking of a series mm-hmm. of cues, um, bringing, you know, and co- creating these changes of behavior and influencing behavior. Yeah. And it's a beautiful, yeah, beautiful I mean, thing. It's, it's a chain, it's a series of cues. It's such a, you know, like it's a behavior chain and it, there's so much to it and there's so much of it that the handler, you know, it's kind of our job to be supportive and under, and, you know, I, I was just thinking about this a lot where I'm, one of my favorite things in the world is partner dancing. Um, and generally I dance a lot of salsa and bachata, which is a pretty rigid lead follow structure, but I also occasionally dabble in swing and blues where the lead and follow can trade back and forth and kind of based on who is exerting more pressure through your frame is who then gets to lead that next move. And I'm, if anyone's an avid blues dancer in the audience, I apologize. I, as I said, I dabble, um, (laughs) but, um, I think of that a lot in scent work where when I am directing our transects and I cue the search and all of that, you know, at the start and the finish, I am in control. It is my job to kind of direct where we're going and make sure the dog stays in the search area and searches the things that we have been asked to search for our job. But as soon as the dog has encountered odor, I'm stepping back and the dog leads. And now it's my job to keep up and help how they, however they need, but not get in the way. Um, and I love I love, I love that. it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love that. And that's that it kind of ties back mm-hmm. around to our, what we started with of play yeah. where it gets, you know, again, the, originally the training was very strict. It was like, go find the target. I'm going to do weird mm-hmm. things. I'm not relevant. Right. Because it's important. You, it's that clarity. You're clarifying mm-hmm. things in the dog's early learning. Mm-hmm. And then when you start really working as a team, it starts to become a dance mm-hmm. and, and it, it gets more and more subtle. And that's that, that word umwelt that you brought up. Um, that's what a, a nose work coach of mine. And it was one of the highest praise that I've ever, uh, I was just, was such a kind thing to say, which was that he, he's seen me sort of surrender myself to my dog's umwelt when he's working. Oh, cool. Yeah. Is like, which is the, and I guess we should define that. Um, he defined it. Um, you probably know mm-hmm. more than I, but, uh, about kind of that, that place where intuition takes over because you don't have the words for mm-hmm. it. You're, you're kind of beyond, you're kind of beyond language. Yeah. We've um, moved past that conscious thought necessarily. Right. And that's, uh, I'm not, I will confess. I'm not always this good, but I, f- I have felt it when I've worked with my dog yeah. because, of just the beauty of what he's doing. And I love that idea of just like if do- a handling, a good handler knows when to surrender to yeah. that and not be, and let go of control yeah. because we, we don't know what the owner's right. doing. So if he goes way out of bounds or, you know, or gets really focused, I, I, I try really hard to say, well, he always has a good reason for yeah. it because 
you know, and so I, I have to, I always trust that my dog at this point really knows what he's yeah. doing. He really knows what he's doing. Or if he's, if he says, let's not go into this area at all, he's almost always yeah. right. There's no reason to go into that area. Um, so, yeah. And so that's, that's, yeah, that's something I've really noticed, especially with Barley, but honestly with Niffler as well, is generally if I start seeing this kind of off task behavior, we call it crittering a lot of the times where he's starting to check mm -hmm. mole holes and think about other hobbies. Almost, almost always, that is a sign that there's just no odor in the environment. There's nothing going yes. on. And and, and we yes. can trust that, though, because we've put in this groundwork. It's, you know, it's like what we were talking about with play as well, where once you can play safely and you are not getting bitten every time you try to present a toy or even readjust the toy and you're not even moving towards present, present, presenting it, then we can start breaking the rules and dancing a little bit more. Um, right. And yeah, like, you know, when Niffler was... I don't know. Actually, that's not even a good example because I started with Nippler when he was so young. But when Barley was three and a half and I first got him and we hadn't even started, we'd barely started our nose work classes yet. No, I couldn't take him to, you know, an urban farm or a fairgrounds or whatever and trust that if he was off task, it was because there was no odor. He didn't know the game well enough. He didn't, <laughs> he wasn't under stimulus control well enough. Um, right. Right. Not, not fluent enough. Yeah. Yet. Yeah. Um, but now at this point we can kind of say that and um, yeah, it's, it's beautiful and uh, <laughs> just so much fun. Um, so we had a couple of things kind of jotted down that I, I don't want to miss, even though I've got so many other directions I want to go, but we're going to try to get <laughs> through a couple of these questions that I had written down. So one of the things I had jotted down that you wanted to talk about was this concept of cue then move. And I'm not familiar with this. So can we jump into that? Sure. Uh, so cue then move. <laughs> and I always spell it for my students, uh, capital T H E N. So it's because the hardest thing for humans, as you mm -hmm. notice, I'm very, uh, I gesticulate uh -huh. a lot as I speak. It's very difficult for humans uh, to uh, say a verbal cue and then present a toy, uh -huh. for example. It, no matter how hard, hard you say, or click then treat. Yes. Uh huh. Right. So this is the way to make um, any cue salient mm -hmm. is by putting it in front of um, a known cue or a known pattern mm -hmm. or an expected pattern. So um, click, then treat. So when you the the known behavior there is eating food out of your hand. Uh, almost every dog in the world knows that if you offer food in there, they can come eat it. That behavior is pretty fluent, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Here's your food. Here's your food. Now we want to make the click relevant. Yeah. But the click has to then so come go, first because otherwise, and isn't this, it has to come first. This is like the overshadowing effect, right? Um, exactly. Where to the dog, the presentation of the food visually is going to be so much more salient than your verbal cue that if you do them consecutively and try to do this simultaneous pairing, um, Mm -hmm. It's going to be far less effective than if you click, then treat. Exactly. Yeah. So, and that's the perfect example. But for to for toys, if you really need that dog to pay attention to the verbal, mm -hmm. or, I mean, we could expand that to your, your left eyebrow going mm -hmm. up. I mean, it could be mm -hmm. anything. Um, um, you could nod your head. 
and then present the toy and that would work mm -hmm. as well. But um, if we want a verbal cue um, to stand out, um, I say cue, then move, which means move into the gotcha. The other, the other mm -hmm. thing. So if it's click, then treat, cue, then present a toy. Mm -hmm. Cue, then throw, cue, then... Um, cue then throw. And mm -hmm. um, what I have, uh, what I did with my dog Tucker, when I really needed him to learn this, uh, he couldn't learn it with toys yeah. because the toys were already cueing all the things I didn't right. want. Barking, biting, right? He, he already had this repertoire of just go nuts when there are toys. So I couldn't actually teach these things with toys, right? Remember, I tried to tuck it under my armpit. That was a silly idea. Mm -hmm. So I started with food because he was a little more able to think with food. So I would say, go chuck a piece of yeah. food. Yeah. Oh, I go, love that. Chuck yeah. a piece of food. And he could, he could process that. Um, or I would teach him wait. Okay. Mm -hmm. He'd move. Then I'd present a bowl, like a Zen bowl yeah. or a, so he was learning to wait for, to, to pay attention to these silly noises yeah, that yeah. come out of my mouth. <laughs> All um, of our human babbling. So the top things would, the top things I taught him were um, when he could take a reinforcer, uh, when uh, when to run, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, versus when to wait, uh, when to release. Uh, I taught him all those yeah. things with food, yeah. and then I I well I, I call it fading in. I brought in the stimuli that were more difficult slowly. Yeah. So so instead of going okay, great, he's learned it. Let's, yeah, let's go, go out get to the, the field with a tennis a ball. Yeah. Right. No, no, no. So I would start, I started just in the quietest room possible with me sitting down and a very, very boring mm -hmm. toy that he barely, he barely cared about. Um, and, but repeated the pattern yeah, say, Hey, this is exactly. just like the, just like the food games. Cause he liked, you know, he, he liked anything to do with anything act, you know, any sure, action. Yeah. And then I slowly, I call it fading in. You just slowly bring in the stimuli that are more challenging, yeah. which what that means is it's the stimuli that already have repertoires attached. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, so for example, going to the play yard already had the repertoire of screen barking mm -hmm. attached to it. Yeah. So, so I had to work up to that slowly with, I had to build the new repertoires and get them very strong and re reliable. And then I could slowly work outside. Yeah. That sounds In, exactly yeah. like yeah. what I did with Barley. And Barley was my first mm -hmm. dog that I've ever worked with that had such big feelings about toy reinforcers that I had to do this. And it was something that I wish I had had a little bit more guidance on when I first got him because it would have saved me so much frustration <laughs> to just be like, you know, because for him and, you know, I, I can't complain too much because as he, he freezes with toys. Um, he freezes and he stares. Um, and I would just be so frustrated that I, I can't get, I still to this day cannot get him to sit with low latency. If I'm holding anything that even resembles a toy, um, it is so hard for him. Um, and I, you know, it's not high priority for yes. me, so it's Okay. But um, I think the biggest thing that, God, I wish, I, I just was so frustrated with him for so long because I did not know how to deal with a dog that had this level of emotion <laughs> around his toys. Right, um, right. 
Yeah. And that's a real common one, especially for border collies, mm-hmm. right? Is you think you're going to make a faster behavior yeah. by using a toy, but uh, think of all that genetics yeah. and, you know, and so they go slower yes. and they start to stare yes. and, and they, they, and they, and they get just ugly slow. Vulture as- set. <laughs> <laughs> that's just the, the worst looking <laughs> posture. And, and it's a be- but it's a beautiful example mm-hmm. of a, a previous, a previously learned very strongly genetically mm-hmm. boosted uh, repertoire. And that's not the way. So you can't fight it. Yeah. You have to change. So that's what I, that's what stimulus, if you understand stimulus control is really mm-hmm. cool. You go, okay, so this context is cueing uh-huh. that thing that I really don't want. All right. How do I change the whole context? Start mm-hmm. over. Maybe with food, yeah. maybe food's yeah, easier. Yeah, that's what we did with Farley. It was like, yeah. okay, let's and, teach you some skills. Right. And then just yeah, do it. And then, and then you slow, again, if, if you want to use toys, I mean, maybe you decide it's not even worth it, but you slowly bring that in once the new repertoires are strong enough. Yeah. Um, well, but isn't that so it's much, so not, it's, it's so yeah. much, it's so great because as trainers, we can control the environment, yes. but we cannot control inside that no. dog. We can't control their, their, their learning history, their genetics, or we can't control that or their impulses. Mm-hmm. We can't, we really can't, we can't open them up and flip the switches. <laughs> yeah, no. Right. But we, we, we have, we do control the environment yeah, yeah. and it's the more we understand how behavior interacts with environment, which is stimulus control. Uh-huh. Um, that's where we can, um, be better teachers, yeah. I think, um, and, and be fair teachers mm-hmm. for the things that are, for the, for the things that are important yeah, to us and important um, to our dogs. Um, the two things that I just yeah. jotted down were ritual and physical cues, Um, so like one thing that I've found incredibly helpful for Barley in particular is having this, these rituals and clear rules and consistency about where the toys appear and when they're in play and when they're not. And if I break those rules, then we are more likely to have problems. And you can say, yeah, that means maybe we're not totally fluent. Maybe we're not under perfect stimulus control, but I'm okay with that right now. Um, you know, and like for us, our big example is I have a um, a very cool giant training uh, fanny pack that I wear in the field. Um, and it holds our toys and it holds my GPS and everything else that we need. And then I wear it on the front because it's a really cool fanny pack. <laughs> um, and he, that fanny pack lives in a closed cupboard at all times. If I pull it out, I will have a dog walking on his hind legs backwards, staring at me, um, luckily quietly, <laughs> but um, until we go to search. And I I have a verbal cue and a start, start ritual. Uh, I was going to say start line ritual, but it's not because it's not a competition quite. Um, but it, honestly, all I need to do is take that training bag. And it's so powerful that I have been able to teach several novice handlers working with Barley because all I have to do is hand him the bag. As soon as they have that bag, they have his attention. He will work for them. And it makes him such a good instructor because we have put all of these behaviors in into the context of this ritual that is embodied with this bag. And all I have to do is hand off the bag. And I have so many people be like, I don't think this is, and I hand him the bag and I'm like, no, you've got it. You don't have to do anything. You can be the worst handler. And if you have this bag, he will work for you. <laughs> That is so cool. What a beautiful example of, of stimulus yeah. control. 
you know, under those, con- under these specific conditions. Um, I find it really interesting because I do a lot of practice searches in my mm-hmm. house. And Tucker is never confused on when I let him into mm-hmm. a room and he's supposed to search it versus it's time for a nap yeah. and we're done. Like, even if there's probably like odor left over from the search an hour ago, like I find it fascinating that he can be that clear. And, and, in and at home, we don't have all the trial cues, right. You know, waiting in the car. Um, I don't do a big harness change. Like some people Mm do. Um, he's, he wears the same harness for walks. Um, but he is never, he never goes into a trial environment, no matter how different, if it's, it looks like, if it looks like a park, if it looks like a building that like a vet's office, it doesn't matter. He will work mm-hmm. perfectly. Um, and I just find it really, really fascinating because there's a, probably a whole variety of cues that is telling him when that's happening. Yeah. Well, this is making me wonder if but, now uh, hard hats are going to become a cue for Barley and Niffler to search because I wear hard hats <laughs> all day on the on the wind farm. And I wonder, I'll have to try putting a hard hat on elsewhere and see if that starts getting their attention right away. Right. Um, and I, 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 yeah, I that, imagine that be being directly under a wind turbine is probably a cue for them uh, at this point. I, <laughs> I don't see myself visiting wind yeah, farms right. otherwise, but it would be really... I bet you that if I just drove to a random other wind farm and let them out of the car, they would want to start working immediately. Now with your, mm-hmm. your dogs who are doing, you know, wildlife mm-hmm. in, in indication on wildlife and things like that, when you go hiking, mm-hmm. do, they, do they ever get confused? No. Um, I've never, I've never really had them indicate on anything that they've found in the field. Um yeah, no. I, I, I was just curious it about never that. Seems but to be you don't have your bag. You don't, don't have, have your bag. bag. Um, you don't have your bag on. Yeah, nope. don't have the bag on. Bag. I would be curious, you know, if you know. Part of it too, though, is kind of you know. I don't know what they what they do or don't miss, and I would be curious, you know, if I put a, a bat out intentionally a, two miles down a trail. So I knew where it was and just walked them past. I wonder if the odor would still be a strong enough cue that without any of the other context clues, they would hit on it. But I, I, I genuinely don't don't know and kind of doubt it. Yeah, I, I'm I'm curious. I, I've heard of people doing that with um, uh, nose work dogs is you just sort of put odor out and pretend it's a walk and see if they notice it. Um, I've never done yeah, it. Yeah, I guess what would, I don't think I see utility in that necessarily because that's. Well, in one sense, it might be kind of uh, the ultimate of is the odor cue right. relevant in any, in any situation we do uh, with my students, we do a little, um, we do a little, we call it an odor test. So I guess it's similar to that actually, where their original training is all in a colander, mm-hmm. just their, their initial condition. So, and then we kind of ask the dogs is odor relevant to you outside of that context, oh, okay. mm-hmm. just as a little, it, it's like a very mild little, little test. And in that situation, we do have them like put a little tin out in their kitchen and then you pretend to be making dinner mm-hmm. and you just see if your dog notices it. And then, and, and, 
and as soon as your dog notices it, you reward, sure. yeah. even though, um, but what's interesting is sometimes a lot of dogs will come in and they will go lay on their mat in the kitchen because they're in the kitchen yeah. and you're cooking dinner and that's what yeah. they're supposed to do. Well, and that's, um, I could just see for a really worky dog and especially, mm-hmm. you know, for someone who's in wilderness search and rescue or in the conservation realm, if you want to be able to continue hiking with your dog or God, if you did human remains detection or something, I like that my dogs aren't searching at all times yeah. because I think it would be very, I, I could just see it being so easy to to get to the point where Barley would never have a decompressing walk again in his entire life. Um, yeah, absolutely. Because, uh, that would be so important. Yeah, yeah. That's what, and that's a beauty. That's another stimulus control benefit. Mm-hmm. Is if you have a dog that's like always on, mm-hmm. because basically it means the green light for reinforcement is is always yes, on. Yeah, it's always on. Uh, that one, the dog's going to be exhausted. Um, Two, the dog's actual work time will be very impacted mm-hmm. because of that. I just think of it like like a washout. Like instead of focused work, it's frazzled. Mm-hmm. I'm always on, kind of. You know, so that's another beautiful um, benefit of really understanding stimulus control. Is can your dogs know exactly when they're working mm-hmm. and when they when they're not working. Um, so yeah. and that's it's, again, it's about conditions. Uh-huh. So my dog, my dog can live in the house that he does a lot of his practicing mm-hmm. in, but he's never, he's never, he never starts searching the house right. unless I've set it up. Um, and, but he doesn't have any of his other cues. Like I don't put his harness mm-hmm. on, you know, I, I'll give him, he has a verbal cue, get to work. I say, get to work. And he gets to work. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's just so crucial that he's able to rest. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and that's, and I think one of the things I really like about this idea of, you know, we've kind of circled around this a couple of times, this idea of putting our, making our cue part of something physical. Um, I've really, mm-hmm. I've really enjoyed having, you know, these physical props that I can then manipulate and control as a way to, put things under stimulus control because they're, you know, and I, this is, this is not breaking news in the dog training world. It's easier to fade those props if you need to, than it is to fade mm-hmm, mm-hmm. something that you are doing behaviorally. Um, but I also love being able to hand those things off or put them away or um, mm-hmm. whatever I need to do in order to get the lifestyle that I need with my dog the rest of the time. Cause he's, he's sacked out sleeping on my feet right now. Um but yeah, if I had that training bag out, I've tried to do demos before with him where I have the training bag on. <laughs> um, and he, he's just in this constant, like he's sitting pretty, he's lying down, he's rolling from one hip to the other. He's trying to like, we are start of our own routine is he does the, like we call it car wash, car wash where he comes and stands in between my legs and he will like try to like push his way between my knees as I'm trying to do a talk unless I get wise and I just uh, like, I literally just put the training back in the hallway because even if it's like up on a table, it's not out of play quite enough for him. So, right. But, but I can do and that that's because, really, uh, because the bag oh, is the powerful yeah, part, brilliant. you know, I guess that's, right, that's where right. I was trying to go with it because if it was me, um, that was the most salient part of that cue. I can't, I can't get that away. You know, I, I guess I would just have to crate him while I was talking and then come grab him at the end for the demo. Which would right. be fine. 
Right. Which a lot of people, a lot of people do that for working yeah. dogs is the, the only way to get them out to just chill out is to put them in a crate yeah. because that's the, that's the context where they go, okay. Oh God, this is something we didn't even can, think about. But yeah, like how having good stimulus control on your behaviors could actually be a huge welfare thing for these working dogs. Oh Absolutely. Um, in fact, <laughs> I know, um, I, I remember he, seeing in a, I don't know, some training video <laughs> or something, uh, the person bred Malmars, mm-hmm. right? He lived with them, bred mm-hmm. them, trained them for shots, you know, did all high and high yeah. intensity training. And he said that he never does any formal training in the house yeah. ever. So the only behaviors that they do in the house are relaxing. Um, and it starts from a puppy, mm-hmm. you know, that they're, they're in a pen in the house. So, but that way, the only time they keep those dogs jack up into super malnoir mode is in the training center or on the training field. Mm-hmm. But in the rest of their lives, they're actually able to be fairly normal dogs. And I thought that this was fairly brilliant. brilliant. If you're yeah. like, if you're, if you're living with five Malnoirs <laughs> or something, you know, or 50, I don't know how many Malnoirs you had. I mean, that'd be very important. They're very, very important. Well, and I think, you um, know, like, so Barley, yeah. part of his struggle and like the first two or three years that I had him was all about having rules and ritual and stimulus control over play um he grew up in a house with three kids under the age of 10 and he is incredibly persistent about finding and asking to play fetch with something you can put all the toys away and he'll bring you pieces of hair you know (laughs) anything and i think part of that is probably because you know unsurprisingly three kids under the age of 10 very hard to have rules um and therefore stimulus control about fetch and um it's, I hadn't quite put it through that framework. But the other thing I was thinking is this concept of, you know, when we talk about teaching a dog an off switch, there are some, a lot of people kind of, yeah, in the breeding world or in the sport dog world where they're like, well, all my border collies have lovely off switches or my working Malinois or my working labs or whatever it is. And I think you just put your finger on a really clear reason why some people may be really successful with that it's not necessarily something intrinsic temperamentally about these dogs that have these off switches it's that you know how to run a household with dogs like this in order to create the environment that promotes something that i guess is an off switch um i was gonna say it looks like but you know the dog's sleeping it's off (laughs) off enough right and i'm actually personally not the best at this Uh uh-huh Cause I'm sort of a training junkie yeah. and I like to be at home. Uh-huh. Right. So both my dogs and I, you know, for years was like, okay, let's do an impromptu shaping mm-hmm. session in the living room. And let's, you know, and uh, over the years I've had to be, I've had to clarify yeah. better because it's, it's sort of like the green light is sort of on all the time. Yeah. Uh, we could train at any time in any room. Well, that's I've had at, this incredibly right? strict rule with and Barley. It's all, all uh-huh. about me, all about uh-huh. me, right? Like you said, I'd love to have just a bag. That'd be fantastic. But it's me. If the dogs can get me to activate and go get the treats, you know. Um, so I, my when I moved to a new house, the best place to build new habits is new contexts. Right. Mm-hmm. So when we moved to a new house, um, I. Uh, I made one room, uh, the office area, 
and it's sort of the bedroom kind of turned out that that way too. Is this is this this is a space where there's napping. Mm-hmm. Dogs can nap in here, but I just made a rule. I will never ever train mm-hmm. in here ever so that this context could at least you know signal yeah. time to just be relaxed and uh, you know, I meet their needs as much as possible all the rest of the time. Sure, of course. Um, and that, but that took that took that took some time, and it it. And I know a lot of people that struggle with uh, dogs that they're just basically expecting reinforcement all the time. Yeah, and that is it's exhausting. Yeah, I mean that was I, I I know I've talked about this previously on the podcast, but with Barley, we have a very strict rule of no fetch in the house especially with guests. I can do it occasionally because I'm, you know, once you've got the rules, you can break them occasionally, but I am really strict with friends and dog walkers and friends and, and family. Um, and it's taken, you know, Barley's eight and a half now. So I've had him for five years and probably the last year, maybe two years now he can relax and interact with strangers in the house without constantly asking them because he is absolutely one of those dogs that if you if he asks you a thousand times and you th- even if you flick it off flick the toy off of your knee yeah. yes. yes he will yes. ask you a thousand and fifty more times you know and so it, it, it yes the stimulus control is so important with these dogs that are so persistent and so you know everything's yes. so important we have so many more things i want to talk about um but one thing that i wanted to bring <laughs> up as well um is this concept that, you know, we can just give it a little nod, is that I think stimulus control is something that has to come after welfare has been met. And that is something that hopefully is evident in all of our conversations on this show. But, mm-hmm. you know, I you you said it, oh yeah, with your dogs and, you know, the fact that you, you don't train in these rooms. You're still making sure to meet these needs elsewhere and having really high demands of stimulus control say for example after a dog has been in a crate for eight hours while you're at work you know you can work up to that but making sure that the dog's needs are being met is an important part of this right absolutely but just Uh to clarify it's not once again we're not Stimulus control is not counter no, 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 no. to anything yeah. else. It, like if I say time to play ball and we go outside mm-hmm. and my dogs learn that the outside area is the context for ball playing, I'm using stimulus control in a very helpful yes. way. Or Yeah, um, it's not that they're right? opposing. Um, it's just that I, I, I wouldn't want someone to listen to this and think that they can and should expect perfect stimulus control without meeting the dog's needs first, especially for something that is really important to the dog. Yes. And particularly for my dogs, um, I don't attempt to have them relax in the office until they've gone on Mm -hmm. a hike. They've had some training like today before Mm -hmm. this session, uh, my, my dog Tucker got to go swimming. Um, there are some dogs that have a high need for that. Yeah, I mean, um, it's it's all part of our antecedent arrangements. Of, yeah, um, exactly. And that's that motivating operation idea I started with, which is uh, the bed is more reinforcing to you when you're really tired. Yeah. You're already tired. But it's not going to be reinforcing if you're really antsy and in the mood to go socialize. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 
part of understanding stimulus control is also working with those motivating operations yeah. uh, in a harmonious yes. way yeah. rather than, rather than just manipulative way, but just a acknowledging that those are shifting all the time mm-hmm. too. Um, yeah. This came up when you were and, talking about um, fluency yeah. and this idea of if you tell the dog to search and then it goes and sniffs and then it marks and then it rolls in some grass. Um, you know, one of my first thoughts as well is, oh gosh, if my dog is that disengaged from me, I probably shouldn't be giving the cue yet. And like, did I potty the dog after I drove two hours to get to wherever I am? Um, Cause right, it's, right. it's, it's both. It's like, well, sure. That means that we're not quite under perfect stimulus control, but also if they've got a, a need to check out the environment and make sure it's safe and they need to empty their bladder, I wouldn't necessarily say that's a huge failure of stimulus control if they're meeting those needs first. Um, I have one more question from Patreon. Um, I know we're starting to run a little long, but um, it is about kind of the concept of stimulus control related to cue hierarchies. So, you know, if we want our dogs to know, and this is a big thing we talk about in this field, like if my dog is in odor and they're kind of working on sourcing a problem and I call them for a check-in, generally we want our dogs to obey odor instead of a check-in. But then if I give my recall cue, that trumps odor. So and this might be too big of a question, but how do we think of stimulus control in the context of these cue hierarchies um, and which cue we want to override which other cue? I mean, I guess that is the whole thing of stimulus control, isn't it? Right. I mean, it is all one big, <laughs> it's one big cue hierarchy all the time. Yeah. Um, You're breaking my brain here. This is great. <laughs> and um, I love it. Um, I mean, I've had a number of examples, which I could send you, which are really funny mm-hmm. to watch in competition where I call Tucker out due to a time limit or something. And he vetoes me stays in and finds a hide. Um, uh-huh. And I'm like, yes, but in the rest of his life, I really, really want him to come when I call him, you know? Yeah. Like he likes to chase wildlife and it's really mm-hmm. important to me to build that up. Um, again, I think of it more in terms of context. If yeah. you can teach the dog that in this context, this is the cue that's going to pay. Uh-huh. Right. Um, the pay the most, be the most reinforcing, the biggest yeah. reinforcement in this context. Um, and then in another context, when there's like, when you're not in the middle of an odor problem, mm-hmm. then this cue is going to be top of the hierarchy. Yeah. Um, I don't know how to, ex- I don't know if I can explain it any better than that. No, it, is I, a little, it is a little variable sometimes. Yeah. Um, and, but it, I have such faith in context that mm-hmm. even if you're out in the field and it's really an emergency, mo- many dogs will still come when called in those situations, yeah. but not if it's not an emergency, if it's kind of yeah. like you're just sort of half calling them. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I know, uh, like, I haven't actually taught like a or maybe you, emergency recall versus Yeah, maybe like non- a whistle, like mm-hmm. a whistle is top and you would only yeah. use it, right? Yeah. (laughs) I know I definitely kind of have, there's the like the typical recall of like, Barley, come, you know, and it's always kind of in the same tone and the same. And then there's the like, you know, like, like, and that one, even though I have not trained it, that heightened emotion um, certainly gets 
results in a way that, you know, it's, it's fine. Um, and you think about learning history. Um, in those situations where Tucker vetoed me, he got paid really well for that. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so I think the doctor saying this call needs to be over. I think it's time. Yes. Um, well, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on. If people want to um, take any of your online classes, learn from you, all of that, where can they find you on the internet? Well, uh, the best place to go, I think, is tromplo.com right now. Mm -hmm. I have a number of classes starting in uh, September and November. Okay. Some new ones, a couple on scent detection and one called Brave Learning 101, which is just Ooh. about just diving into teaching and learning with uh, positive reinforcement. And, um, and I'm also on Facebook, Sarah Owings on Facebook, and that's about it. Those are the main. Great. I'm also well, a cyber dog, cyber dog online. I do a, a foundation indi you know, indication training for scent detection on there as well. Excellent. Well, we'll put all those links in the show notes. And again, thank you so much for coming on. This was so fun. Um, but yeah, I think we both need to go let some dogs outside. So yes, my pleasure. Thanks so <laughs> much. Right. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned a lot and you're feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist like Tucker and Niffler were begging us to at the end here. Um, and, you know, do whatever suits your passions and skill set. You can find show notes, transcripts, cute stickers of Barley and Niffler and Ellie and Suki. Uh, you can join Patreon for our book club and our group coaching calls, as well as private one-on-one -on -one mentoring. All of that and all of those links can be found at canineconservationists.org. Until next time. <laughs>